Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. On Wednesday, May 10th, our Irish friend who's living in Spain now oh. <laughs> is going to be back here at GCA. Miles McKee will be here preaching for us that night. And so I'm going to start saying that and announcing it now so that you can all plan on that Wednesday night to be here. It would be nice if we had a good turnout for him. And it's just fun to listen to his Irish brogue. So May 10th, Wednesday night, plan to be here for Miles McKee. Tonight we are continuing in Daniel chapter 2. We began the book of Daniel three weeks ago. And then the next week was the conference in Gladeville, so we were there. And then the week after that, I had that terrible flu bug. And I was very fortunate that Tom was willing to stand here and do the teaching that night. And so it's been three weeks since we've been in Daniel. Fortunately, I think we're early enough in the book that I don't have to do a whole lot of review in order to catch us up. But even though we kind of got into a little bit of chapter 2 three weeks ago, we will start right at chapter 2, verse 1. Daniel and his three friends were part of the first deportation of Israelites into Babylon. And they were in the process of being prepared to be taken in front of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. But before that three-year process could be completed for Daniel and his friends, the king had a dream. And in the course of trying to attempt to keep the king from killing everybody, Daniel came forward and said that he could interpret the dream. And so that's pretty much where we are. Chapter 2, verse 1, introduces the first of Daniel's visions in the book of Daniel. And this first vision will give us a large panorama of things that he is going to fill in in more detail later. This really gives us the big outline that the whole rest of the book, all the rest of the prophecies of the book, all kind of fit into the grid of this first vision. In the first vision, he's going to name accurately the kingdoms that are going to come after the Babylonian kingdom. And it is because he is so accurate in predicting these things that, as we said three weeks ago, critics of the Bible attempt to late date the book of Daniel because they think there's just no way, save God's miraculous power, there's just no way that Daniel could know this. And since they begin with the a priori critical position of there cannot be supernatural things and there cannot be miracles, therefore, if Daniel was not miraculous, the only way to explain it is that he had to have been writing toward the end of the Grecian kingdom as Rome was coming on so that he could accurately write about the things that had taken place in history, which makes Daniel a forgery. However, as we mentioned three weeks ago, the book of Ezekiel mentions Daniel. Ezekiel is a contemporary of Daniel's. He was taken in the second deportation of Israelites into Babylon, and, and he mentions Daniel. And for me, the nail in the critic's coffin is the fact that Jesus, in Matthew 24, makes direct reference to Daniel, which means that either Jesus was fooled by a forgery and didn't know it, the all-knowing mind of, of God himself was fooled by a clever forgery, or Daniel really is a prophet. Then, of course, the Qumran caves, the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered. Practically in my lifetime, they were discovered. And there were copies of the Apocalypse of Daniel in there that sent Daniel and his prophecies and his writings into a much earlier date 
than the critics had posited he must have done his forgery during. In other words, the book of Daniel has credibility that even the higher critics of the late 19th century, the late 1800s, those critics didn't have access to the amount of information we have now. But then right after the higher critics tore into the book of Daniel, Sir Robert Anderson wrote a book called Daniel and the Critics' Den. (laughs) And he took the book of Daniel as being prophetic, took it at face value, and lo and behold, it turns out, history has proven that he's right. And yet he just stood on the word of God, even in the face of popular opinion, where the whole world was turning against the idea that Daniel was genuine and were adapting to the idea that Daniel was a forgery, he stood on the word of God and said, no, that that just can't be the case because there's too much of Daniel yet to be completed. And that's a really important point. Daniel accurately lists the kingdoms after Nebuchadnezzar. Actually, in the Old Testament, we read about seven kingdoms that ever oppress Israel. And this is the key element in all of Daniel's prophecies and in all of the Old Testament prophecies. It all has to do with Israel as the central issue. There are other kingdoms in the world. There have been other empires in the world. The Bible doesn't say anything about some of the Eastern empires, some of the things that went on among the Mongol people and the Chinese empires and stuff. You don't read anything about that. You don't read anything that doesn't have to do with kingdoms that directly oppressed Israel. That's the contact point. So in the Old Testament, we read about seven kingdoms, the seventh of which doesn't appear anywhere in history. But the first six and the description of the first six and the order of the first six is so phenomenally accurate that we have to conclude that the seventh will be equally accurate. Does that make sense? Yes. And because the first six are earthly kingdoms that can actually be found in the history of planet Earth among mankind, I continue to argue that the seventh kingdom to come will be a historic, earthly, physical kingdom that is as identifiable as the first six were. Because Daniel does not say, Here's a kingdom, and then there's another kingdom, and then there's going to be another kingdom, and then suddenly it all becomes spiritual kingdoms. He doesn't say anything like that. He just gives you a succession of kingdoms that happen on planet Earth, five of them in Daniel's writing. Uh, Four of them have already happened, and there's a fifth hanging out there. As I said in the history of the Old Testament, starting with the Egyptian captivity into the Assyrian captivity, into the Babylonian captivity, into the Medo-Persian captivity, into the Grecian kingdom, and then finally the Roman Empire. That's a series of six. And then in that succession of kingdoms comes this seventh kingdom that we can't identify in human history anywhere. People have attempted to identify it by spiritualizing it and saying that, that it is a succession of Roman emperors, or it's a succession of particular popes, but when you look at the actual details that include during the time of that kingdom, Christ will return. If Christ has not returned, then we have not yet found that kingdom. It is still to come in the history of planet Earth. Make sense? Makes sense. Okay, so Daniel is going to have, in chapter 2, the first of those visions, and he's going to lay out the big overview of the next five kingdoms, starting with Nebuchadnezzar and ending with a ten-nation loose confederacy, which is the kingdom that we have yet to see. There, I've introduced long enough for Carol to get here. (laughs) So that's good. Chapter 2, verse 1. Now in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams And his spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. Then the king gave orders to call in the magicians, the conjurers, and the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. 
So they came in and stood before the king, and the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is anxious to understand the dream. Then the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever, tell the dream to your servants, and we will declare the interpretation. Perfectly logical, rational thing to say. Tell me the dream, I'll tell you the interpretation. The king answered, verse 5, and said to the Chaldeans, The command from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you will be torn from limb to limb, and your houses will be made into a rubbish heap. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. <laughs> we looked at this three weeks ago. The king is now asking for an impossible thing. He is demanding that they tell him the dream so that he will know for certain that they understand the interpretation of the dream. Because if he just tells them the dream, well, then they can make up anything. So he wants to know what the dream was and the interpretation. They answered a second time and said, let the king tell the dream to his servants and we will declare the interpretation. The king answered and said, I know for certain that you are bargaining for time. Well, do you think you're going to be torn limb from limb and your house is going to be made a rubbish heap? Of course you're going to bargain for time. So the king answered and said, I know for certain that you are bargaining for time inasmuch as you have seen that the command from me is firm, that if you do not make the dream known to me, there is only one decree for you. For you have agreed together to speak lying and corrupt words before me until the situation is changed. In other words, they had all gotten together and said, we'll just give him some kind of interpretation until he changes his mind. You know how he is. He's Nebuchadnezzar. He's flighty. He's going to change his mind in an hour. So keep him occupied. Tell him what the dream means. He'll forget about it. He's saying, no, I'm going to stand firm on this one. You've agreed together to speak lying and corrupt words before me until the situation is changed. Therefore, tell me the dream that I may know that you can declare to me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, there is not a man on earth who could declare the matter for the king. Inasmuch as no great king or ruler has ever asked anything like this of any magician or conjurer or Chaldean. They're telling the truth. It's an impossible thing. Men can't do this. The king is demanding an impossibility. Now, three weeks ago, I think I mentioned that Barney Johnson stood here one time and he preached on this passage. And he likened King Nebuchadnezzar's command that was impossible to God's command to mankind that is equally impossible. When God says, be holy, be righteous, it's something that God can command of mankind that man simply cannot do. So the answer, of course, has to be in God. God has to give both the holiness and the imputed righteousness and the wisdom and the knowledge and even the relationship all has to start with God. And so the Chaldeans, knowing that they can't do it and that it's an impossibility, they say, verse 11, moreover, the thing which the king demands is difficult. I think that's an understatement. (laughs) And there is no one else who could declare it to the king except the small g gods. Now, in Babylon, they had a pantheon of gods, a whole host of gods. And so they said that only the gods would be able to do something like this, but but man can't do it. So no one can declare it to the king except the gods whose dwelling place is not with mortal flesh. Verse 12, because of this, the king became indignant and very furious and gave orders to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. Now, this gives you some insight into what kind of king Nebuchadnezzar was. This gives you some idea of the kind of power and authority that he wielded, and that he could just make up his mind that he wanted ridiculous things, and if people didn't deliver it, he would kill people at random. 
just kill them, destroy their house, take care of their family. He just had that kind of unbridled authority. Yes, sir. There's quite possibly a history between him and the magicians, too, that he's been lied to before. Yeah, he seems to think they're liars on a regular basis. I think there's a history here. Yes. Because of this, the king became indignant and very furious. You would think that a wise king, that a knowledgeable king, that a, a human man would go, I know it's tough. I get that it's impossible. I, I just want you to, to show me something. But he doesn't do that. No, I'm going to kill everybody. Verse 13, so the decree went forth that the wise men should be slain. And they looked for Daniel and his friends to kill them. Then Daniel replied with discretion and discernment to Arioch, the captain of the king's bodyguard, who had gone forth to slay the wise men of Babylon. He answered and said to Arioch, the king's commander, for what reason is the decree from the king so urgent? Then Arioch informed Daniel about the matter. So Daniel went in and requested of the king that he would give him time in order that he might declare the interpretation to the king. Then Daniel went to his house and informed his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, about the matter in order that they might request compassion from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that Daniel and his friends might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. That's where we stopped three weeks ago. So now we're all caught up, right? Okay. I tried to do that with minimal comment. Verse 19 says, with no fanfare, with no big ta-da moment, just says, then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. That's astounding. That's amazing. Even the Chaldeans have already admitted this can't be done. Nobody can tell somebody else what they dreamt. But in a vision, the God of heaven has told Daniel what the vision is. Now, if it's you or me, the very next thing we're going to do is we're going to run to Ariak and go to the king and say, hold it, I got it. I've got the vision, I've got everything, and uh, dig me. <laughs> Men can't do this, humans can't do this, I can do it. So watch me go. That, that's just human nature to want to self-promote when you can do something that nobody else can do. When you know something that you're sure nobody else knows, you naturally self-promote. That's not what Daniel does. Daniel goes back to God. And Daniel praises God for the fact that God has allowed Daniel to know something that nobody could otherwise know. And this, again, is a very, very important principle that that you even see many times in the New Testament. uh, A good example of it would be the ten lepers that Jesus healed. And then one came back to say thank you. And he said, where are the others? You should be all here saying, thank you. I've done something that human beings can't do. I've healed you. You're no longer unclean. And only one of you come back and say, thank you. So Daniel does the right thing. He goes back and he blessed the God of heaven. Now, we've talked about that word blessed before. It means at its root to speak well of. It's the essence of what praise is. So let's take a moment and talk about this praise idea. Because we do hear, at least I hear, a lot of people talk about praising God. And what they mean by that is they say, I praise you, Lord. I praise you, God. Or they're in the praise team. So they're praising. And I keep thinking, when does the praising start? Here, let me put it this way. What if I was to request something of my son? No, better yet, what if my son was to request something of me. And he began by saying, I praise you, Father. I praise you, my daddy. Praise to you. All praise to you. Praise you, praise you. He must want it really bad. (laughs) Well, at some point, I'm going to say to him, 
What does that mean, praise me, praise me? What, what does that even mean? My next door neighbor, who is very Southern, I went out one day and he was in the driveway and he was working on his car and I said, what are you up to, Ray? And he said, I'm fixing to fix my car. <laughs> and I said, contact me when the actual fixing starts. <laughs> okay, well, this is the same idea. Praise, praise, praise. We say that word a lot. Praise, praise, and praise, praise. No, if my son really wants something from me, he's going to come to me and actually praise me, which isn't saying, I praise you, I praise you. It's coming and saying, you're a good father. You're a good provider. You're a somewhat funny person. <laughs> you're a guy other people like to be around. Do you, do you hear that? That's actual praise. I like the sweater you're wearing, Carol. Your hair looks nice tonight. Green is a good color on you. That's actual praise. But it's not going to mean anything to Carol if I just say, I praise you. But you have to actually say things that are exalting them, that are blessing them, saying good things about them for it to be actual praise. And that's what I don't see a lot. I don't see a lot of actual praiseworthy statements made about God. Instead, I just see people kind of getting off on the flippant remark, I'm praising God, which is why I ask, where's the praising? When does the praising begin? And like in the book of Psalms, all the praises, they're actually listing things. You did this, and you were, you were mighty over that, and you conquered these, and you're actually listing his attributes and his accomplishments. Which, are, which is actual praise. Right. Yeah. And that's what Daniel's going to do here. He's actually going to extol the virtues of God. So I say all that to say, next time that you're praying to God and you begin praising God, actually praise him. Say the things he's done for you. Say the things that he is. Recognize that he's the, the one that made heaven and earth and that he's the one who has protected you all the days of your life and he's the one that's given you food and shelter and clothes and he's the one that gives you health and you know your own name and, and say all that back to him. Then you are actually literally praising God. Make sense? Makes sense. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. Then Daniel blessed, spoke well of the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, let the name of God be blessed forever and ever. For wisdom and power belong to him. So what is the source of power? We've talked about this so many times. This is the God of heaven who gives himself the proper name El Shaddai. I am God Almighty. So he has even given himself a name that declares that he has all the power. Mm -hmm. So if he knows, since he knows everything, if he knows that he has all the power, then how much power does that leave for you? Okay, you have no power, which means that anything you are empowered to do, anything you are empowered to know, if you're empowered to get up out of your bed, if you were empowered, like I said a moment ago, to know your own name, he is the source of that power. All power within us is power that emanates from him, but we have no power intrinsically within ourselves. Left to ourselves, What's the absolute best we can do? Get old, get sick, and die. Yeah, yeah that's, that's what we got. We have no power. In fact, we have no power to enact our will. How many bad things have ever happened to you that you either didn't see coming or you didn't want, you weren't looking for them, and the bad thing happened anyway? That's because you have no power to enact your will. If you did, you would will that thing not to happen. And yet these things occur because God empowers everything. Same thing with wisdom. Do you know anything? Especially do you know anything about God? Especially do you have any comprehension of his word? Especially do you have any wisdom of eternity? What God's enterprise is to save his people. If you know any of that, that's not worldly wisdom. That's not earthly wisdom. That's God-empowered wisdom that he has granted to you because not everybody knows that stuff. Not everybody understands. 
So if you have any understanding, any comprehension of God, it's because wisdom and power belong to him. They emanate from him. They come to you from him. And it is he who changes the times and the epochs. What Daniel is saying is you're the God of history. You're the one who is in control of everything that happens on the planet. And he removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men. He gives knowledge to men of understanding. That's the same thing I was just talking about. If you know anything, if you're wise at all, if you have any understanding or knowledge of the things of God, it can only be because God has granted you that knowledge. Have you ever, uh, in your lifetime, certainly when you were younger, as opposed to older, remember when you were older? I'm sorry. Were you ever at some point in your life where you tried to read the Bible and you just couldn't make hide nor hair out of it? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Too many hands went up. Yeah, there was a time when you tried. And you just, I should read the Bible. I'll try. I remember as a young man picking up the Bible and just starting at Genesis 1-1. And uh, I was okay through the flood stuff and sort of the Abraham stuff. And man, by the time you get to numbers and all the begatting and all the everything, I'm like, what is all this about? I thought this was supposed to be a book to help me spiritual. I don't get any of it. And then one day, God decided to open my mind at least enough that I was able to start making sense of his word. And I can't explain it because there's nothing within me that did that. And yet his word began making sense to me. And I began teaching his word and studying his word and, and ingesting his word. And I can't get enough of his word. And yet all those years ago, I couldn't even read his word. Okay, well, that's because knowledge and understanding all have to come from God. Left to ourselves, we can't do it. We wouldn't do it. But the wisdom and the knowledge and the understanding come from God. It is also God who removes kings and establishes kings. And he's still the same God today as he's ever been. He's in charge of the people who are in charge of the world. People do worry over the machinations of the leaders of this world when they get together and make their plans and have their summits and make their peace plans. And man, how often in my own lifetime have I seen presidents try to get Israel and the Palestinians together to make some kind of peace deal and, and they can't figure out why they can't do it. I, I can figure out why they can't do it. Because Jesus said they'll say, peace, peace, there's going to be no peace. There's going to be no peace till the Prince of Peace comes. As long as human beings keep trying to accomplish what only God can accomplish, they will continue to fail at it. But it is God who is in charge of the human beings who are in charge of the planet. And he can raise up one and he can knock down another because they're only human and they only live as long as God would have them live. Look, he's about to talk to Nebuchadnezzar about the Babylonian kingdom. And I find this absolutely fascinating because at the point where Nebuchadnezzar is at his zenith, his most powerful it turns out that God only gave him that power over man and beast so that God could use him and Babylon to punish his people Israel. And once that was done, God got rid of Babylon. Babylon was impregnable. Babylon was unconquerable. Nebuchadnezzar was phenomenal. You know how long the Babylonian kingdom lasted? The period of the Chaldean Empire in Mesopotamian history began about 626 B.C. and it ended 539 B.C. That's less than 100 years. That's closer to 70 years. Where they were just, they were it. The known world was ruled by Babylon. And then Nebuchadnezzar died and then his grandson ruled for a little while and then the Medo-Persians swept in, and the Babylonian kingdom, gone. And God said Babylon was never going to be rebuilt. 
For a while, Alexander the Great attempted to rebuild it. Couldn't do it. For a while, Saddam Hussein tried to rebuild it. Couldn't do it. Why? Because God said no. God said it's not going to be rebuilt. Roughly 80 years after Nebuchadnezzar died, Herodotus, the, the historian, visited Babylon, and he wrote that he had never seen so much gold in his life. Just all the buildings and all the architecture and all this, just everything is so gold. In fact, it's probably why in Daniel's vision, you're going to see in a moment, that Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon are a gold head. I mean, gold is what they were known for. So they were wealthy. They were powerful. They had the giant walls that nobody could get through. And yet, after they had accomplished what God wanted to accomplish, which was to take the Israelites, very specifically to take the Judahites out of Judah, once that was accomplished, God wiped out Babylon. Which means that the leaders of the planet today will accomplish whatever God wants them to accomplish. And when they have accomplished that, he's done with them. He'll move on to the next one as he raises up and takes down kings to accomplish his will. Because we know how it ends. And if we know how it ends, then God knows the means to the end. Verse 22, it is he who reveals the profound and the hidden things. He knows What is in the darkness? Boy, that's a deep phrase. That's a profound phrase. He knows what's in the darkness. We don't know. We don't even know what the other side of the moon looks like. It's the dark side of the moon. We don't know. Out there in space, we don't know. It's dark out there. We don't know. He knows. There is a place that Jesus talked about where God is going to send people who fall under God's condemnation, and the place is called outer darkness. Outer, not just inner darkness, which would be bad enough. So far out of God's presence, God who is light, who has encased himself in light, he's going to send so people so far from his presence that they're outside into the outer darkness. And yet he's going to know He knows where they are. He knows what's in the dark. And the light dwells with him. To thee, O God of my fathers, that's Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the progenitors of Israel, to thee, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise. Yes, he does. He is actively praising. For thou hast given me wisdom. And power, even now thou hast made known to me what we requested of thee. For thou hast made known to us the king's matter. Therefore, Daniel went into Arioch. Notice the order. He does not start by going to Arioch, which would be the natural human tendency. Stop it. Don't have to kill anybody. Dig me. I got it. No, first he goes to God. First he says thank you. First he praises God. First he extols the virtues of God. Then he goes to Arioch. Therefore Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and he spoke to him as follows. Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Take me into the king's presence, where he had apparently not been before. Remember, he's being prepared to be taken into the king's presence. Take me into the king's presence, and I will declare the interpretation to the king. Now, i got to say that verse 25 is a little bit funny, because I've just talked about how Daniel did the right thing in going to God and didn't spill his ego out by saying, I know what's going on now, and I can, hey, I've got it all. But he tells Arioch, don't kill anybody. I can interpret the dream. And look at what Arioch says, verse 25. Then Arioch hurriedly brought Daniel into the king's presence and spoke to the king as follows. I have found a man 
among the exiles from Judah who can make the interpretation known to the king. Me, I did it. You, you remember the magicians and the soothsayers, the Chaldeans, the liars? Remember how we don't like them? I'm with you. I don't like them either. But me, I found a guy among the Jews who can do this. The king answered and said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered before the king and said, as for the mystery about which the king has inquired, neither wise men, conjurers, magicians, nor diviners are able to declare it to the king. However, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the latter days. This was your dream and the visions in your mind while you were on your bed. Now, this phrase, the latter days, shows up several times in the Old Testament, and when it shows up prophetically like this, check me on this, but it seems to me that it almost always is used within the context of the coming Messiah. Whether it is his first incarnation or whether it's his return at the end of the age, the phrase, the end of times, the latter days, is always in connection with what God is going to do when he sends the Messiah. Which is why I think when Messiah was actually on the planet, that his disciples asked him questions like, what is the sign of the end? What's the sign of your coming? What's the... Because that idea of the last days is always messianic in its nature. However, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the latter days. This was your dream and the visions in your mind while on your bed. As for you, O king... While on your bed, your thoughts turn to what would take place in the future. And he who reveals mysteries has made known to you what will take place. But as for me, this mystery has not been revealed to me for any wisdom residing in me more than in any other living man. But it was revealed to me for the purpose of making the interpretation known to the king and that you may understand the thoughts of your mind. So even at this point, talking to the king, Daniel continues to say, even knowing that the king has said he's going to give him a great name and he's going to make him mighty in Babylon and everything else, whoever can interpret my dream, I'm going to make rich and powerful. Even knowing all of that, Daniel continues to say, this isn't from me. This is from God in heaven. And he has revealed it to me because I'm no better than any other man. I couldn't do this on my own. So here's the king's dream. You, O king, were looking, and behold, there was a single great statue. That statue, which was large and of extraordinary splendor, was standing in front of you, and its appearance was awesome. The head of the statue was made of fine gold its breasts and its arms of silver, its belly and its thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You continued looking until a stone was cut out without hands, and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed all at the same time and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them was found, but the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. And then without pausing, Daniel launches right into the interpretation because the king said, don't just tell me the dream, tell me what it means. So Daniel starts at verse 36. This was the dream. Now we shall tell its interpretation before the king. You, O king, 
are the king of kings to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory. And wherever the sons of men dwell, or the beasts of the earth, or the birds of the sky, he has given them into your hand and has caused you to rule over all of them. You are the head of gold. Which had to make Nebuchadnezzar think, I like this so far. <laughs> this interpretation is going well for me. Because the next thing he's going to talk about is the kingdoms after Nebuchadnezzar. Now you will notice that he does not say Babylon is the head of gold. He says you, Nebuchadnezzar, are the head of gold. Then he's going to describe kingdoms that are ruled by particular notables. And the first one that he's going to describe is the Medo-Persian Empire. After you, there will arise another kingdom inferior to you, and then another third kingdom of bronze, which will rule over all the earth. Notice how brief that was. You, you're really something. And you're great, and you're the king of kings, and you rule all the men, and you rule all the animals, and God has given you a great kingdom. Now, the next two magnificent kingdoms, he wraps up in one sentence. But he does say something important. He says, they are going to be inferior to you. Now, the Medo-Persian Empire, in particular, actually grows larger than the Babylonian kingdom. The Medo-Persian Empire ran from 550 B.C. to 330 B.C., 220 years from the time of their inception and control of Babylon until the end of their rule, 220 years as opposed to 70. But the same way that silver is less valuable than gold, are you familiar with scientific weight? Is that the word for it? Atomic weight? Or mass, that's a good Catholic answer. Um, <laughs> because gold has a density and a weight. Have you ever picked up a bar of gold? It's heavy. But silver has a lesser scientific weight than gold does. And that's why it's an inferior to gold kind of precious metal. So the next kingdom is described as a silver kingdom. And the kingdom after that is described as a bronze kingdom. Now, just let me give you a little bit of history that I just find interesting because as I've read about these things, different commentators have brought up different uh, historical realities that I just find fascinating. The Medo-Persian Empire, as grand and as big as it grew, was very heavy into taxation, especially Darius the Mede was very into taxation. In fact, in the Chaldee language, the word for money and the word for silver are the same word. And taxation was done in silver. And so in the time of Darius, he amassed such a war chest of silver that it paid for the wars of the next 200 years after Xerxes, his son, came into power and, and the, the various different wars among the Persians, they were uh, financed with all the silver that happened to be part of the Medo-Persian kingdom. I just find that interesting, that God would be so specific as to say Babylon, which is all gold, like I mentioned earlier, Herodotus talking about all the gold in Babylon, that's the golden head. And then the silver arms and chest. Now, interestingly, the same way that the human body is divided into a right arm and a left arm, the Medo-Persian Empire was both the Medes and the Persians and had two leaders, both Darius the Mede and Cyrus the Great, Cyrus the Persian. Now, eventually, Cyrus rose up and was more dominant than Darius the Mede, which is why in a later vision, we're going to see that that Medo-Persia is described as a bear that raises up on one side. But for the moment, he then describes a third kingdom of brass, of bronze. Now, I find this again fascinating because if you were to look at the Medo-Persian army, if you were to look at the Medo-Persian fighters, most of them wore a turban, 
and then they wore sort of flowing, roughly kind of shirts and trousers. That's what they would wear even into battle. And the Grecian army was known for the fact that they wore helmets of brass, they had brass breastplates, and they carried shields of brass. And so they were known as the brass army. And so it is interesting, again, that as Daniel is describing the next inferior kingdom under the silver, not only does he describe an inferior metal, but it's a metal that was pervasive throughout the Grecian Empire. So again, God paying attention to the details and getting it exactly right. Not only did Daniel predict the kingdoms to come, but he dropped little clues about what kind of kingdoms they were going to be. After you, there will arise another kingdom inferior to you than a third kingdom of bronze, which will rule over all the earth. And then, verse 40, then there will be a fourth kingdom as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron crushes and shatters all things, so like iron that breaks into pieces, it will crush and break all these into pieces. That was the hallmark of the Roman army. It was known for the way that its phalanx of soldiers would stand in a line with full-body shields dressed in all of their armor, and then they would march forward, unstoppable, plowing through the opposing armies, crushing the armies ahead of them. And so Daniel accurately says... It's an iron kingdom because, like iron, it's going to crush and destroy. That's exactly what Rome did. So the Medo-Persian Empire, which I mentioned, ran from 550 until 330 BC. The Greek Empire, under Alexander the Great, after his father, Philip of Macedon, was killed, Alexander rises to power, and from 332 to 146 BC is kind of the zenith of the Greek Empire, before the Romans take over, that the real zenith of Roman Empire from the times of the earliest Caesars until the end of their kingdom runs from 27 BC until about 476 AD, which is the end of the Eastern Empire. Now, the same way that Daniel said it's hips and legs of iron, the Roman Empire was divided into the Eastern and Western kingdoms. The Western Empire had its capital in Rome, and the Eastern Empire had its capital in Constantinople. And even though eventually the city of Rome was sacked by the Visigoths, the Eastern Empire continued on for several more hundred years until it finally fell about 476 to the Ottoman Empire. And then you see the rise of the Turks, and you see you see the rise of uh, Islam, which we're still dealing with today. So Daniel accurately not only has described the coming kingdoms, but the same way that the Medo-Persians had two sides, and then the belly was joined together under Alexander the Great, then the legs divide eastern and western, so that's an accurate description of the Roman Empire. And then at the bottom of that, those, there's these feet of clay and then ten toes of clay and iron, some Rome and some clay, and it's the word for earthen clay, that when you put it in a kiln, when you bake it, it's a very brittle clay. It can break very easily. So he seems to be describing sort of a loose confederation, that even though they have some Rome in their background somewhere, and even though there's a Roman sort of influence to them, these ten toes really are a loose confederation without one central king until the little horn rises up. Verse 40, then there will be a fourth kingdom as strong as iron inasmuch as iron crushes and shatters all things so like iron that breaks in pieces it, that kingdom, will crush and break all these things in pieces. And in that you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it will be a divided kingdom. 
but it will have in it the toughness of iron inasmuch as you saw the iron mixed with common clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly pottery or partly clay, so some of the kingdom will be strong and some of it will be brittle. And in that you saw the iron mixed with the common clay, they will combine with each other in the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, even as iron does not combine with pottery. And in the days of those kings, okay, that's an important phrase, because now we know there's a ten-nation confederacy, which means that each of those nations has its own kings. So now Daniel starts talking about a time of ten kings. Now later on, he's going to get back to these ten kings, and he's going to talk about the one that unites them, the little horn, the one who we commonly call the Antichrist. But for sake of this vision... He's just going to say it's during the time of then those ten kings that the Son of Man is going to come back and destroy the kingdoms of this world. Now, unless you can show me where in human history Jesus came back in as real and tangible a way as the Roman Empire or the Greek Empire or the Medo-Persian Empire or the Babylonian Empire, unless you can show me the Jesus Empire then I have to say, that hasn't happened yet. And don't forget that the end of the Roman Empire was, what, 400 years after Jesus, the Eastern Empire at least. So the Daniel clock was still ticking, and as we continue through Daniel, when we get to his 70 weeks and that stuff, we'll be able to put a finer point on some of these things. But for the moment... In those days, verse 44, it is in the days of those kings, those ten, that the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. And that kingdom will not be left for another people. Notice that all the previous kingdoms were conquered by another people. All the previous kingdoms were left for the next wave of other people to come in. The Babylonians were conquered by the Medo-Persians. And the Medo-Persians were taken by the Grecians. And the Grecians were crushed by the Romans. And he says, there's a kingdom coming that's never going to be destroyed, never going to be left to other people. I haven't seen that yet. One thing we know about all the kingdoms of this planet through all of world history, even up until this very day, is that they're all temporary. They all come and go. But in those days of those kings... The God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put to an end all those kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. Inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, the gold. The great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future, so the dream is true and the interpretation is trustworthy. Now, through the many years since Daniel has said this, and certainly through the last 2,000 years of the church age, people have offered up a whole lot of interpretations. And as we continue through Daniel, we'll have to talk about those various interpretations that run the gamut from preterism and the assumption that Jesus came back in some spiritual form in 70 AD, all the way into futurism and that Jesus is going to be back and set up a kingdom to amillennialism that says Jesus is going to come back, but there's going to be no tangible kingdom on the planet. The kingdom is right now, ever since the cross until the coming back. There, there has been all these interpretations. Like I've said, people have listed ten popes, or they have listed ten of the Caesars, and they've said, well, those are the ten kings of the kingdom that's partly Roman and partly clay and doesn't adhere. But the problem with all of those interpretations the root of the whole thing is right here what Daniel said. It is in the time of those ten kings that Christ comes back. And he has to come back in a way that is as real, as noticeable, as tangible as those previous kingdoms. Because there's no division in Daniel's succession of kingdoms. 
It's the kingdom, the kingdom, the kingdom, the kingdom, and that kingdom. And so to say that the final kingdom, the stone cut out with hands, is a kingdom of a different nature than the previous kingdoms, you got to come up with some evidence. You got to show where Daniel said, or importantly, where one of the New Testament authors said that the proper interpretation is that that kingdom is a spiritualized kingdom that is not to be on planet Earth. And you can search the Bible from beginning to end. I don't adhere to hermeneutical systems. We've talked many, many times through our eschatology series about the problems with covenantalism or dispensationalism or, or any other ism or new covenantism. Or They all have their problems because there's no system that can fully embrace what the Bible says. But if you take the Bible at face value, it is clear that Daniel is describing a kingdom on planet Earth centered again around Israel that is yet to come. And that's the succession and the character of all the previous kingdoms. So unless there is something in the Bible that can convince me otherwise, I have to say that the final kingdom is likewise going to be an earthly kingdom. Which I think is why at the beginning of the book of Acts that the disciples said to Jesus, since he is raised up from the dead again, they said, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel at this time? Now? You've died. You've raised. You're the best king ever. You can't be killed. We know there's an everlasting kingdom coming. When are you going to do that? Now? Because they understood it to be a literal, physical kingdom. And, of course, his answer was not, guys, do you know nothing? It's a spiritual kingdom. That was not his answer. His answer was, not yet. It's not for you to know the times and the seasons that... God keeps in his own hands. But he did not say, no, no, the, the kingdom is here now ever since I died on the cross. As soon as I resurrected, the kingdom's inaugurated, and this is it right now. Instead, he said, in the restoration, you 12 will sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Okay, well, that sounds like a future event to me. So Jesus kept throwing that kingdom to come into the future. So I got to say it's in the future. So then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face and did homage to Daniel and gave orders to present to him an offering and a fragrant incense. The king answered Daniel and said, Surely your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, since you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts, and he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. And Daniel made request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the administration of the province of Babylon while Daniel was at the king's court. So now we have some idea why God both gave Nebuchadnezzar this dream and also gave Daniel the interpretation. The end result of it was that Daniel, a Jew exported out of Judah, is now ruling Babylon. <laughs> Very much like Joseph ending up second only to Pharaoh in Egypt. Because God knows how to promote people. God knows how to put people right where he wants them to accomplish what he wants. And look, if, if Daniel, a Jew, is ruling over Babylon, you think the Jews are safe in Babylon? You remember, we read Jeremiah saying, when you're deported, it's going to run 70 years. So go into Babylon and start business and plant vines and, and have a good life there. And don't rebel against it, because this is the will of God for you, that you're going to go into Babylon for 70 years. What he didn't mention was, oh, yeah, and your ruler is going to be a Jew. So it's going to go okay with you, because that was God's plan. Make sense? Makes sense. Did you enjoy that? Yes, sir. Okay, well, I'm glad you were here. 
Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.